I'm happy to be able to gather for a variety of reasons. Uh, not only because did uh, Pastor Josh, before the service began, allow me to preach for one hour and 35 minutes. I'm, I, I'm not going to preach that long because I'm sticking to my manuscript. But I am so excited and happy to begin a new sermon series with you this morning. Every week we do this, uh, this routine practice of we open up the Bible, we give great praise to Jesus, we open up the scriptures, and then we talk about Jesus and we think about Jesus, and then we close the Bible and then we continue to think about Jesus, and we typically do this through a book or a letter of the Bible, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Now, we're going to do that same thing today, but we're going to do something a little different. This morning, we are beginning a new series where rather than completing the sermon series in several consecutive weeks, back-to-back, we're going to begin a new non-consecutive sermon series. Now, what does that mean? That means that we start this new series today, and we'll be revisiting this series from time to time, rather than just spending 6, 12, 18 uh, weeks, or even two years, to complete the series. So, everything is going to look just the same. It's just we're just going to come back to it from time to time. Now, what is the series that we're calling? Well, we are calling this series How to Destroy a Church. Now, I shared that title with some friends uh, last week at Life Group as we completed our church covenant series, and I got some laughs and some eyebrows raised. Why would we spend uh, so many weeks thinking about how we are to live as a church, and now we're going to spend an indeterminate period of weeks to think about how to destroy a church? Well, friends, let me assuage some fears uh, in your minds. I am not going to give you a step-by-step blueprint on how to tear a church down. Rather, we are going to open the scriptures, consider how God has spoken uh, to various areas in our Christian life as a church, and we're going to consider how we are then to live as a church. So, if your fears are assuaged, let's continue. Now, how to destroy a church. But if, if Jesus has promised, and not if, since Jesus has promised that he would build his church and not even the gates of hell would prevail, how then can the church be destroyed? And maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor Chris, are you saying that Jesus' work can be undone? Are you, you saying that uh, you have the power, we have the power to destroy God's great work? Well, it's not what I'm saying. But I would ask, can the church be destroyed ultimately? Well, absolutely not. Even though statistics show church membership is in decline nationally, those statistics do not reflect the reality that Jesus has suddenly stopped building his church or that he has reneged on his promise. However, can various kinds of sin lead to ruin amongst a few Christians in the congregation and even lead the whole congregation to ruin? Yes, and there are a whole host of scripture passages that warn us against the various kinds of dangers that local congregations face. The first danger that we'll consider in this series is conflict in the local church. So if you are taking notes this morning, we are going to consider three overarching questions, uh, three principles for peacemaking, and a few practical helps with each Principles. So three overarching questions, followed by three principles for peacemaking, and then with each of those principles, we're going to consider a few practical lessons to consider. Now, 
every Sunday when I get the chance to preach, I usually will recommend to you a book, right? So we want to provide helpful resources for you to further grow into the image of Christ. I'm going to do something a little different today as well. Rather than recommending a book, of which I can recommend many, let me help you make use of a phenomenal resource that is freely available to you right now. You don't even have to go visit the book cart. There's a fancy clicking pen that is right in front of you in the pew backs. Let me encourage you to make use of that pen, and you can take that home as we consider these three overarching questions. Number one, what is at risk? Number two, why do you fight? Number three, how do we make peace? So what is at risk? Why do you fight? And how do we make peace? One main idea that we're going to consider from the scriptures and unpack this morning is simply this idea that the church is called to live in peace amid a war-making world. The church is called to live in peace amid a war-making world. So keep that idea in your mind as we seek to unpack this from the scriptures. First question we'll consider is what is at risk? What is at risk? Personal conflicts are some of the most painful and difficult and oftentimes persistent aspects of our lives in this fallen world. Whether it's within the church, in our homes, in the workplace, amongst our neighbors, or with members of our own families, we know that when sinners rub shoulders, conflicts will inevitably arise. I think everybody this morning is silently, internally shaking their head like, yeah, you got that right, Pastor Chris. Well, for example, if we just consider from the scriptures, the apostles themselves were no strangers to conflicts in the church. You can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, we're exposed to one of the few recorded instances of interpersonal conflicts in the church. So the Apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, Divisions being formed, conflicts resulting in factions. You, you continue on in uh, reading through the letter of 1 Corinthians. You know, we all love the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, right? But did you, did you notice in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says love is not proud? It actually ties back to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2 when Paul says, and you are proud, right? So all of this that's borne out later on is coming from this uh, issue of conflict in the church where uh, there are divisions being formed born out of pride. That was not in my manuscript. That's just a freebie for you. But back to my manuscript, friends, you can see Paul's love for the church in Corinth because rather than pretending like there were no issues or attacking the Corinthians for creating these issues, and I would imagine that for the Apostle Paul, this kind of creates a bit of a headache. He's trying to plant churches and make the gospel go out, and then there's these group of kids over here bickering and fighting. 
rather than pretending like nothing was wrong and rather than attacking them for creating these problems, the apostles sought to directly address the issues and resolve the conflicts, not in a way that would elevate himself, but in a way that would elevate Christ. Brothers and sisters, left unresolved, conflicts of various kinds will only have rich soil to grow deeper, wider, and perpetuate more sin. The fruit that will grow on the trees of unresolved conflicts are often the fruit of bitterness, resentment, division, hurtful words, and hurtful actions. And it tastes bad, too. Christians, however, have been called to live in peace with one another and to actively, quickly, and diligently resolve conflict when they inevitably arise. Now, I didn't make that up. This call to live in peace with one another is found all throughout the New Testament. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you two examples. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing again, this time to the uh, Christians uh, in Ephesus. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, not metaphorical, literally, in, in, in bounds. He's in prison writing this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, again, uh, he writes uh, another letter to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, as he closes this letter, he says in verse 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Look at all those different ways that he describes this call to live in peace. Aim for restoration, which assumes that uh, at some point there's division, relational division, right? Comfort one another. People were likely hurting. Agree with one another. The inverse is probably true. People were disagreeing, right? Live in peace. People were likely living in disharmony. Do all these things, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, did you notice, just in these two passages, and there are so many more that we can consider, that there is an active component to this call to living in peace with one another? It's an active component. Peacemaking doesn't just happen accidentally. You can't wish for peace to happen hard enough, and then it just suddenly blooms out of nowhere. Christian peacemaking is active, and in every way, Christian peacemaking is rooted in what God has done for us. Now, I asked the question at the beginning of this section, what is at stake? What is at stake? So what is at stake if there is ongoing, unresolved conflict in the church? I think you all would agree with me, and I would submit to you, that both the testimony of the church and the long-term health and well-being of the church are at stake. So the testimony of the church and the long-term spiritual health and spiritual well-being of the church are at stake when conflicts are just left to fester unresolved. The damage that can be done when conflicts in the church are not resolved in a Christ-honoring manner that is marked by humility and love and grace, that damage can impact the church 
for generations. Churches really do split over the choosing of the color of the new carpet. Churches really do split and in anger take several of the members to meet as a church down the street or on the other side of town while they bicker with one another. This really happens. Those aren't just stereotypical images that we think of because it just fits as an illustration in the sermon. No, I know of churches that have done this. But praise God, we have not. And pray that the Lord would continue to maintain the peace that is within our own congregation. Sin does grievous damage to more than just those who are immediately involved in interpersonal conflict. Sin has this ability to have wide-reaching ripple effects that will touch so many more people than just two people in an argument. There is much at stake. Now, if we all agree there is much at stake, a really helpful question to consider then would be, why do you fight? And when I say you, I, I include myself in that. I am not free from fighting. Second question we want to consider this morning, why do you fight? Right? So this is the question that James asks his hearers in his letter in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, or if you don't, there's black pewback Bibles in front of you, turn with me to James chapter 4. If you're new to reading the Bible, James is found in the New Testament. So the Bible is, uh, there's two parts to it. There's the Old Testament, then there's the New Testament. The New Testament is towards the end of the Bible. James is towards the end. It's after Hebrews. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find James 4 on page 1201. You can also follow along as I read. Uh, you can follow along on the screens. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, James did not ask this question, what causes quarrels and fights among you, my dear brothers, as if he was trying to investigate the problem, as if there's this unsolved puzzle that's really stubborn and he's trying to fit all the pieces together. And he's like jamming this one piece in the middle. That's not what he's doing. James asked this question rhetorically to diagnose this problem. He's diagnosing the problem that these Christians were facing and modern secular counseling practices will approach the cause of interpersonal fighting and quarreling in a myriad of ways. And while they may be descriptively insightful, they cannot see the anti-God drive that operates within all of our hearts. Interpersonal conflicts so often demonstrate our internal desire to be the judge. We, left to ourselves want to be God. By our very nature, sinners contend for our own presumed self-interest. Contending for your self-interest can be very helpful. If you have a job that is offered to you, it's a good idea for you to negotiate your salary. Don't be greedy now. 
but it's a good idea for you to contend for your self-interest in that sense. But so often, we contend for our own presumed self-interest at the expense of others. We want to be God, and when someone wrongs us, driven by our inward passions, we want to exact our own brand of justice. When we are wronged, we are quick to ready the troops and prepare for war. We have identified the enemy who threatens our own self-interest, and we come to the battleground that is our relationship with them, prepared to make war against them. According to James, the root that our interpersonal conflicts stem from are the warring passions within us. David Powelson, uh, who, uh, the late David Powelson, a, a theological and personal hero of mine, uh, he is a, uh, was a phenomenal biblical counselor. He wrote a really helpful article, and he said, commenting on James 4, he said, James does not say, you are fighting because the other person is a blockhead, uh, because your hormones are raging. Uh, because a demon of anger took up residence. Because humans have an aggression gene hardwired in by our evolutionary history. Because your father used to react in the same way. Because core needs are not being met. Because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day at work. Instead, James says, you fight because of your desires that battle within you. You want something but don't get it. The biblical analysis is straightforward and cuts to the core. You fight for one reason, because you don't get what you want. Now, it does take two to tango, but ask yourself, why are you in the dance? You fight because your desire, what pleases you or displeases you, what you long for or crave, is frustrated. This is at the root of all of our interpersonal conflicts, whether with those inside the church or outside the church, whether it's with your spouse or your neighbor, with your children or your pastor, with a fellow Christian or a non-Christian. Your passions are at war within you. And those passions will typically manifest itself outwardly. Uh, consider the list of the works of the flesh that Paul lists out in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Uh, I, I won't have you turn there, but just jot this down. Consider how more than half of the items that Paul listed describe some aspect of interpersonal conflict. He says, enmities, strife, jealousy, fits or outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envying. Brothers and sisters, how often do you envy yourself? You envy someone else because they have something you wish you had, whether material or immaterial. We desire and do not have, so we murder. We covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. When I consider how the scriptures speak, post-Genesis 3, so things look really nice in Genesis 1 and 2. When I consider how the scriptures speak after Genesis 3, both the imagery and instances of violence, murder, warfare, that's born out of raging internal desires, I have come to realize 
that I think a better description or word is needed for conflicts. I think there's a better word or a description that we should use when we're thinking about interpersonal conflicts. And while this is not inspired by the Lord, this is just uh, my own understanding and and, uh, observations from the scriptures, I think a better description we should use for interpersonal conflicts is war-making. Our interpersonal conflicts are better understood as relational war-making. Left to ourselves, we all resemble the angry brother Cain more so than the innocent brother Abel. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, jealousy, gossip, putting down all these things and more are weapons we use in our relational war-making. Powelson, uh, he went on to say, War-making is a prime trait of sinners. It's the image of Satan, who from the very beginning was a liar, murderer, divider, and aggressor. Peacemaking, though, is about God in Christ and about, how human, and about human beings renewed in his image. The Lord is the supreme peacemaker. Even in his common grace, God inhibits the outworking of evil's logic, often preventing human life from disintegrating into anarchy and barbarity. Those forms of partial peace negotiated and sustained by diplomats, mediators, counselors, and other well-intended people are gifts of common grace. But God's special grace is even more profoundly about peacemaking. Warlike humans surrender to Christ. He made peace once for all between us and God. He continues to make peace, teaching us to do the same with each other. And he will make peace finally and forever. Friends, how is the Lord the supreme peacemaker? How has God made peace, and with whom has God made peace? These would be good questions for you to consider this week in your life groups or maybe during lunch with another member. How has God made peace? Spoiler alert, Paul answers this in several places. I'm going to give you two. Consider Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and let me encourage you, maybe commit this passage to memory this week. Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you uh, want to increase the amount of Bible memory uh, in your mind. Well, you can consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 to kind of spice things up a little bit. Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, 
and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The Lord is the supreme peacemaker. When you and I were enemies of God, God made peace. While you and I hated God, God made peace. While you and I proudly transgressed against him and rebelled against him and proudly said with arms filled with weapons saying, no, God, God made peace. How? By sending his own perfect son, Jesus, the very prince of peace, truly God and truly man, who, without sin, lived a perfect and satisfactory life, a life of perfect peace with God. It is this Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus, who took upon himself the punishment we deserved for our peace-breaking sin against God and one another. It is this Prince of, uh, Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross, satisfying God's wrath for our war-making sin against God and one another. It is the Lord Jesus who rose from the grave three days later, showing that God had accepted his substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our peace-breaking sin. It is the Lord Jesus who has made peace with God possible, a peace with God that you and I could never earn or secure by our own efforts or merit. It is the Lord Jesus who has reconciled us both to God and to one another. It is the Lord Jesus who is himself our peace. It is the Lord Jesus who continues to make peace. It is the Lord Jesus who teaches us to make peace. It is the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who will finally and forever make peace. Friend, if you are with us today and you are not a Christian, what I just explained is not good advice. What I just explained is not a 12 bullet point step for you to have a better life. If you are here with us today and you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here with us today. And I really hope you will come back again. But let me ask you this question. If, if, if you're not a Christian... Or maybe your parents are Christians and, and, and you don't identify yourself as a Christian yet. Will you consider the reality that you have a greater conflict presently ongoing than the interpersonal conflicts you might have with your siblings, your coworkers, or your neighbors? Each of us have engaged in a profound conflict with God. But it is only in Christianity that you are given the solution for peace with God. The verdict is given before the performance is analyzed. That is good news that you are only going to find in Christ. It is God himself who will make peace with you if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus. I'd encourage you, friend, to stick around after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you more about how you can have peace with this peacemaking God. 
There is a beautiful reason why the Lord Jesus is given the title, the Prince of Peace. Earthly rulers may manipulate others, abuse power, wage war, and redefine truth to mean whatever they want in order to accomplish their agendas. But the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he governs with peace. And our Prince of Peace is bringing with him a day when all will be peace. Should the Lord tarry, he has instructed us in his word how we as his church are to make peace and how we are to live in peace with one another as we wait for him to bring that day of peace with him. So question number three, how do we make peace? How do we make peace? Picture in your minds that you are traveling down, on, uh, down a road with peacemaking as your destination. Peacemaking is your destination, and as you're traveling, you approach a three-pronged fork in the road. One path will lead you towards your destination of peacemaking. This is the road that we need to take to actually get to our destination of genuine reconciliation, restoration, living in peace with one another. That's where we're trying to go. But this is an arduous path to take, and this path, should we take it, promises to be uncomfortable and inconvenient at times. But one of the other paths you can take is tempting because it looks like it would be an easier road to take, and it's going to cause less discomfort. It's the path of what I call peace faking. I know it's clever, peace faking. This is better known as the path of escape. So this path, uh, if you take this path, instead of trying to resolve conflicts, this path is taken by those who just want to get away from conflict. Right? Peace faking and the path of escape will often look like a, a variety of things, but just for a couple of examples, it looks like denial. This path uh, exercises the response of denial, which is pretending a conflict doesn't exist or refusing to do what we can to work things out. Uh, it can also look like the response of blaming. Instead of taking personal responsibility for our contributions to the conflict, we try to escape conflict and responsibility and accountability by blaming others for the problem. No, he made me angry. That's blaming. He, he's the problem. Now, there's another uh, uh, branch on this path we can take, and that's the path uh, of running away. And this response is just that. We run away. We've written the person off. We don't want anything to do with them. We just pack up and leave relationally. And sometimes even maybe visibly, physically, we just leave. Right? And while uh, this is not on the slide, I would even add, if you're taking notes, the silence treatment. Right? I'm not going to address this. He should just pick up what's wrong. He should just know. I'm not going to say anything. It's a silent treatment. Now, the peace-faking path is tempting, but it doesn't ultimately lead to resolving conflict. You don't actually get to where you want to go. Right? Ironically, it only prolongs the ordeal. But the peace-faking path, this isn't the only option available. You have another path available to you. And this other path is what I call peace-breaking. This is the path of attack. 
So rather than working through the conflict and aiming for restoration, speaking honestly and speaking the truth in love, uh, seeking to uh, 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 assume the best about one another, we attack each other. So this path is for those who uh, can argue. They can win a fight. They're, they're ready to put their gloves on and, and, and put up their fists verbally, relationally. How do we attack each other? A couple of ways. We attack each other through put-downs. This is an age-old weapon of our relational war-making. We attack each other with harsh and cruel words. We tear each other down in order to make ourselves look better in the situation. Right? So it would look something like, do you know what he did? He's such a jerk. I didn't even say anything back. Right? So I attack this person, and then I'm elevating myself to you, hoping that you actually see, yeah, he was a jerk, and you didn't do anything wrong. I'm on your side. Another age-old uh, weapon in our relational war-making, and this is a, a particularly subtle weapon, and it's sinister. It's like one of those that the, the metal detectors won't pick up, right? Like, this is kind of hidden. We don't even know that we carry this weapon sometimes. It's gossip. Gossip. We talk about people behind their backs to damage their reputations, bolster our own, or to get others to take our side in the conflict. Right? We put the best possible spin on ourselves. I responded perfectly. And we put the worst possible spin on the other. Can you believe all these things that he did? And then we were really good at listing out all these other things. And sometimes we are so courageous with our use of this weapon of gossip that we won't actually say that face-to-face -face when we have the opportunity. No, no, no. We take the courageous route, and we gossip behind people's backs. That was sarcasm. Just like the peace-faking path, the peace-breaking path will only lead us to relational ruin. You are not going to get to your destination if you take either of these two routes, even though they are so tempting and they promise to be easier so how do we get on the path toward peacemaking? The Lord Jesus counseled his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, where he explained, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, some of, some of you might be thinking, but Pastor Chris, that's all good and easy for you to say, but you don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know what this person did to me. You don't know how they treated me. You don't know the hurt that I carry because of their offense against me. And if, you're, if that's you, I would humbly admit that, you know what, you are probably right. I might not understand with as acute clarity how you have been offended and how you have been hurt and wronged. I also might not have all the facts that you have been privy to to understand all the ways, all the details in which someone else wrongly offended you. But I am committed 
to walk with you on the path to making peace and aiming for restoration. I commit myself to help you to live in peace with one another. I'm certain Pastor Josh would commit this to you as well. And it is always easier to make a promise on behalf of someone else when they're not in the room. But you know what? I see a room filled with brothers and sisters, and I'm just going to go on a safe assumption here and say, you know what? I think there are brothers and sisters in this room right now who would make the same commitment as I am making to you. I commit to walk with you. And I hope that on this path, I won't be left alone here. Many of us, when we think about peacemaking and uh, relationships that have gone sour, you know, we, we'll think of Jesus' famous words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, the call to turn the other cheek, it's not a call to invite further abuse. The call to turn the other cheek is not an invitation for further offense. Uh, one pastor helpfully commented, when we are wronged, we often feel helpless, being cruelly maligned, falsely accused, cynically exploited. I can attest, I have been the victim of all those things. We can it, it, these things can incite the desire to reclaim a sense of power. Jesus' words, however, show us a radical and often more powerful response. For when we turn the other cheek, give away our cloak, or keep on walking, we are undermining the offender's power over us by acting with a willing attitude. Moreover, we are not allowing the burden of vengeance or bitterness to rule us. Above all, we are displaying the power of God at work in us, for he is patient with the unjust. See how this is more than just calling to be offended again? Turning of the cheek is to demonstrate the power of God that is at work in you by trusting in Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul seems to be an expert, this like Holy Spirit-inspired expert on relationship mending and on Christian living. You can read all his works and you're going to see the same uh, motif, the same thread all throughout his uh, works. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, for example, he instructed the Colossian Christians, put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I'm going to repeat that last line just because Paul's words are better than words that I can share for you. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, a question that we probably will be asking is like, well, how exactly do I do that? Pastor Chris, I want to do this. I understand that this is what the scriptures say. What should I do? How do I do this thing? How do I be like this and live in peace with one another? So, Three principles for us to consider 
when it comes to making peace with one another and living in peace with one another. Principle number one, recognize God calls you to pursue peace in all your relationships. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If you want to know where I got this from, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Paul instructs the Roman church, in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, to live in harmony with one another. Then he continues in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, if you ever wonder, God, what is your will for my life? His will for your life is that you live in peace with all. A couple of helpful lessons to consider. First, you are responsible to live at peace with others. Romans 12, 18, Paul does not say that you are to live peaceably with those whom you like the most or with those whom you agree with the most or with those whom you have the most in common or with those who have yet to offend you. He says... Live peaceably with all. So we are to make every effort to live in peace with everyone. And while we get to experience a lot of freedoms and a lot of luxuries in Christ, one luxury that we have not been afforded is the luxury to pick and choose with whom we will exercise peacemaking with. Living at peace with others will require us to learn also how to communicate with one another in a way that edifies and builds up rather than accuse and tear the other person down. Uh, I've learned in pastoral ministry, uh, pastors uh, seem to have like this uh, radar that kind of attracts people to speak kind of in a way that they normally wouldn't speak with like non-pastors, right? And maybe that's just the, the, the call of pastoral ministry, the kind of work that we're doing. I'm still growing as a pastor, and sometimes when people attack me and they are harsh with their words, and you know that they want to turn their words into a fist to my face, that makes me feel not the best. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I think the writer of Proverbs, uh, I think he and I had a few things in common. I'm not as wise as him, but I think he understood what I'm understanding, because in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, I think he... Uh, comically said a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger I, I think he and I had that in common it, a soft answer will turn away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger when we just attack each other with our words that's the fastest way to take your car instead of going towards your destination of peacemaking it, you just careen it off the cliff it's to attack each other with your words now a second lesson to consider under this first principle. Remember, God does not guarantee the outcome. So Paul in, uh, includes in one command two qualifiers. Pay, pay attention to that. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. There's only so much that you are able to do. It's very possible that even with the most genuine intentions and sincere pursuit of peace, reconciliation just may not happen. So if the other person is just absolutely unwilling to reciprocate uh, forgiveness, to reciprocate peacemaking, you cannot force them, bend them, twist them, contort them into making peace with you. You can't force them into it, even if they're a professing Christian. 
Reconciliation may be the aim, and it should be the aim, but it may not be the outcome. It's not guaranteed. But you know what is guaranteed? Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Uh, lesson number three. First, or uh, third, you must seek to reconcile with everyone with whom you have conflict. It's like Paul is just banging on the same drum. So, let me quote someone else. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke directly to offenders. Uh, he said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. So, if you just want to summarize Jesus' words, go be reconciled and do not delay. Reconcile quickly. A second principle to consider in our efforts of peacemaking, God teaches us how to view conflicts. A couple of other helpful practical lessons. First, realize that conflicts generally speaking, are sinful and must be resolved. The kind of conflict that we're talking about is not you and I view a matter of doctrine differently, even though interpersonal conflicts can result from that. What we're talking about is relational war-making that arises from self-centered hearts and results in hurtful words or hurtful actions, alienation, separation, and the like. Conflicts must be resolved actively and diligently. Paul in Romans 14, verse 19, he says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Lesson number two, realize conflicts are inevitable and should be expected. We should expect conflict to happen. And by that, I don't mean enjoy conflict or go ahead and perpetuate conflict because it's going to happen anyway. No, what I mean is we live in a world that is marred by sin that just so happens to be made, of, made up of people who are marred by sin. So the only reasonable conclusion that we can come to from these observations is that there is no sphere in your life that will be free from the effect of sinful human conflict. Third lesson in this second principle. Realize that conflicts are opportunities for growth in holiness. So why would I say that conflicts are opportunities? Am I just trying to uh, put a positive spin on a negative thing? Well, don't think, of, don't think of it as a fight. Think of it as an opportunity. No, what I mean is it is legitimately, literally, an opportunity for you to grow. At every turn in life's winding road, Romans 8.28 should color your perspective. If you are suffering today, if you are grieving today, if you are wondering where is God and what is he doing, why is he doing this, Romans 8.28 should color everybody's perspective regardless of where we might be found on life's winding road. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's purpose for you can be made up of many things, but his purpose for you is for you to be conformed into the image of his son. That means then that the conflict you find yourself in, whether through your own fault or someone else's, God will use all things, even that situation, to further sanctify you and conform you into the image of Jesus. So, 
Will you seize the opportunity to grow in holiness, or will you allow this to be an opportunity for you to fester in bitterness? Principle number three, God directs you on how to resolve conflicts. A couple of more practical lessons here. First, commit yourself to pleasing God in the conflict situation. So often when we are in an interpersonal conflict, we're fighting against somebody, we are first thinking about how we are going to be satisfied. We are good at litigating against the other and prosecuting them, and we're able to throw all the evidence against them because we are seeking to satisfy and justify ourselves. I do not say that to heap condemnation on you, but by way of encouragement, let me encourage you to follow the path of Jesus, who sought never to please himself, but only his heavenly Father. Commit yourself to pleasing God. A second lesson. Repent of your sin and seek forgiveness from God and the other person. Repent of your sin and seek forgiveness from God and the other person. And I, I, I very intentionally chose these words because notice, I did not say... Uh, go ahead and submit an apology. We're going to talk more about that in a second. If you have committed an offense against another, first humbly confess your sin to the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive you. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Be specific. Put away excuses and agree with God on your sin. And once you've confessed to the Lord, humbly confess your sin to those whom you have sinned against. And again... Be specific. Put away excuses and agree with God. If you exploded in anger against your spouse, don't say something like, hey, babe, sorry about losing my cool there. I don't know what got into me. No, be specific. Put away excuses. Humble yourself. Because if you continue reading in James chapter 4 and you get to verse 6, you'll see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God is not a being whom you want to be against you. An insincere confession is closely related to lying. You should name your sin and humbly confess it because God gives grace to the humble. So what would a humble confession look like? Honey, I sinned against you by bursting out in sinful anger. I'm not going to make excuses for myself. I was wrong, and that's not how God wants me to live. It grieves me to have sinned against you like that. Will you please forgive me? Friends, that is legitimately word for word one of my confessions to my dear spouse, who so graciously, like the Lord, has forgiven me countless times. There's a world of a difference between saying a generic I'm sorry to get past the momentary awkwardness and actually humbling yourself to someone to forgive you because you recognize forgiveness is not something that you are entitled to. Forgiveness by its very nature must be freely given to you from the offended party, from the party who holds the debt that you have incurred. Forgiveness cancels a debt. Forgiveness requires that someone bear the cost of what is owed. A wrong has been committed, and a penalty or a debt is due. 
When you genuinely forgive someone, you absorb the cost of the offense that has been committed against you. You cancel that moral debt that they owe to you. And when you do this, you are making a threefold promise. This is not original to me. This is something I have been given uh, by helpful biblical counselors that has blessed me and helped me on this path to living in peace with one another as I am continuing to be conformed into the image of Christ. Let me encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, as I have done so, on a sticky note in my Bible, write these threefold promises down because this will bless you. Promise number one. I promise that I will not dwell on this offense. You can look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, uh, after the service. But when you forgive, you are promising that you will not replay the videotape of their sin in your mind so that you can pick apart and analyze every excruciating detail. You are promising you will not dwell on this offense anymore. Promise number two, I will not use the offense against you. You can look at Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. You are promising that you are not going to use the offense done against you as an opportunity to exact vengeance against them. Sometimes in marital conflict, it's common to hear someone say something like, well, you always do blah, 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 or you never do blah, blah, blah. Friends, just strike the terms always and never out of your vocabulary unless you're saying to your spouse something like, I will always be faithful to you and I will never leave you. That's not inspired from the Lord. That's just some helpful counsel from one of your pastors. I promise that I will not bring up this offense again or use it against you. A third promise. I will not gossip or malign you because of this offense. You can consider Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. All of us are easily tempted to gossip, and we may not even see it. We put the best possible spin on ourselves and the worst possible spin on the other person. But Jesus very wisely said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't need to invite a watching party to come watch how you tear this person down as to, because of how they have offended you. And once this offense has been forgiven, you promise that I will not gossip or malign you because of the offense. I will put it away. There's three promises that we make in forgiveness. If you didn't get a chance to write that down, I will give you the sticky note that's in my Bible and I will write a new one and put it in mine again. Let me close with one last word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Church, this is to be our disposition towards one another because this is the Lord's disposition towards us. Kind, tender-hearted, forgiving he is not a God who is seeking to exact his revenge against you after having forgiven you. He continues to be kind. He continues to be tenderhearted. He continues to be forgiving. Have you experienced his tenderheartedness? Have you experienced his kindness? Have you experienced his forgiveness? You have in Christ. And it is in Christ that we are to live with peace 
and in peace with one another and amid a war-making world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making peace uh, with, between us and you and with one another. Father, we trust that uh, peacemaking and resolving conflict and dealing with uh, difficult situations uh, require wisdom and is, and, and is oftentimes challenging. Uh, Father, we ask and pray that you would uh, equip us, enable us, strengthen us, help us, God, by your great grace, grace that is greater than any of our sin, grace that is greater than any offense that has been done against us. Father, we ask that you would help us on this path to peacemaking. And Lord, help us on this path to this, uh, this journey that we are on to the great heavenly city where we will have nothing but peace. God, we commit this time to you now and pray that you would bless us as we strive to live in peace with one another because of the peace that you have made with us in Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.